From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. The best way to support the show is by booking a Disneyland, Walt Disney World, Disney Cruise Line, or Adventures by Disney Vacation with Dreams Unlimited Travel. Get a free no-obligation quote today for your next dream vacation at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 283 of Connecting with Walt. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, executive producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing okay. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well. Thank you. So just sort of settling in (laughs) and have a million tasks that I have to do and all that. So did you... Did you celebrate Mardi Gras and Lent? Well, Lent, that's more my area. I should say in Valentine's Day. Uh, I did not celebrate Valentine's Day, uh, unless you call celebrating uh, uh, getting myself an Arby's roast beef sandwich. Then I celebrated Valentine's Day. Uh, now, it's uh, Kylie and I don't ever celebrate Valentine's Day anymore. We just we we got past it. So uh, we're you know, we I, we just we 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 go a little bit more all out on like our birthdays and such, and and keep Valentine's Day modest. Uh, Mardi Gras was kind of boring this year uh, for us. I uh, ended up having to work really late because Tuesday, of course, is podcast recording day, and so I had to make a really rushed jambalaya, and <laughs> that was that was okay. And then uh, you know, we we did get a king cake from a. Uh, a local bakery here so that was pretty fantastic and unfortunately i i found the baby in it so i'll have to buy the king cake again next year like i keep buying it every year so uh, <laughs> no no changes there but yeah it's all uh it's all um kind of just been pretty pretty easy going I, I usually i like to celebrate a little bit more with mardi gras and you know i actually usually look forward to uh to the start of lent because that's the start of me having as much fried fish as i want even though i'm not catholic i i still try to <laughs> try to maintain it on uh on that first wednesday and fridays and yeah then i ended up at arby's so kind of went the wrong direction on that but don't judge me too much on that <laughs> Uh, no, I, I didn't celebrate Mardi Gras at all just because my Tuesday was just so busy. And I had a meeting that night at church that I was running. So I, uh, so there was no celebrating for me. And, uh, yeah. And, um, Wednesday was busy too because I had cl- class and mass and just all kinds of stuff. So our, our shelter, our animal shelter was a bit overcrowded. So they were, doing adoptions for um, $14. So I have a young cat named Philip who is very playful and energetic, and he is uh, running my older cat's ragged. So I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll see if there's a friend for him. So I did. I got a, I adopted a black cat whose name is Poncho, but he doesn't seem like a Poncho. And he was clearly very well cared for. 
by his previous owners. And so, um, so he is our newest addition who in the house. So, so we will see how that goes, that transition goes and all that. So. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the more the merrier. Adding uh, adding I, some extra love in the house on Valentine's Day. Yeah, I think Day. I've I've limited. That's <laughs> it. I've reached my limit on cats in this house. So anyway, well, at least you know your limit. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people out there that don't. <laughs> yes. Anyway, well, in this episode, we are continuing our Windows on Main Street series in which we talk about those who were honored with a window on Main Street or elsewhere in the parks as this tradition expanded beyond Main Street over time. Most of these windows honor those who made significant contributions to the parks, with the exception of Disneyland Paris, whose windows also bear the names of characters from Disney films and television shows. The names usually appear as fictional business people and may reflect their contribution to the park, their hobbies, or other interests. Marty Sklar once said, to add a name on a window today, there are three requirements. Only on retirement, only for the highest level of service, respect, or achievement, and on agreement between top individual park management and Walt Disney Imagineering, which creates the design and copy um, concepts text. Today, we're going to look at the career of Walt Disney's master planner, Marvin Davis. You can find tributes to him at both Disneyland and the Magic Kingdom. At Disneyland, he shares a window with Richard Irvine above the Disneyana shop. And that one can be hard to read. It just has their names on it. And there's an awning over it, which shades it. So you sort of have to see it at the right time of day. At the Magic Kingdom, he is listed on a window above the Plaza Restaurant that reads, Walter E. Disney, Graduate School of Design and Master Planning. Instructors Howard Brummett, Marvin Davis, Fred Hope. Headmaster Richard Irvine, Dean of Design. John Hench, Instructors Vic Green, Bill Martin, and Chuck Mile. Marvin Davis was born in Clovis, New Mexico on December 21st, 1910. He attended UCLA for two years before transferring to the University of Southern California, where he graduated as a top student in 1935 with a degree in architecture and was awarded the American Institute of Architects Medal. Two years later, he was hired by 20th Century Fox as an art director and worked on several films, including Gentlemen Prefer Blonde, starring Marilyn Monroe, and The Asphalt Jungle, starring John, or directed by John Huston. And he worked on many musicals, including all the ones starring Carmen Miranda, and The Snake Pit, starring Olivia de Havilland. Marvin worked at Fox for 16 years and never received a screen credit, so, which is a shame, but not uncommon in those days. So yeah, it's also I, in. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, you, you watch back to the you know older older films. It's so many people uh, just went unrecognized because that was you know that, that was just part of how credits were actually actually dished out back in those days. And I mean, there were smaller productions that. Uh, 
didn't necessarily, uh, you know, utilize as much, you know, especially it had no visual effects around uh, that you you had to sit through 10 minute credits because there's 9000 artists out there who who did touch ups and and help with the productions. But, yeah, it's uh, one of those sad things that there are people that, you know, poured their heart and souls into to movies and TV back in the days and just no no real credit for it unless it, you knew about it from from a person friend of a friend however however you found out so mm-hmm. uh, it's a it's a shame yeah it's also interesting how in the early days of film and maybe it's still true today how many people had experience in architecture um were hired by the film studios to work on films. Yeah, I, I honestly, I wish I had more insight on the connection with that, but I, it, it is interesting. You're, you're absolutely right. Now, Marvin worked with Dick Irvine on many of these projects at Fox, and he had been hired by Walt Disney in 1952 to act as a liaison between Walt Disney Productions and the architectural firm being considered for designing Disneyland. And after a few meetings, Dick and Walt concluded that Walt's staff were better suited for the task. Dick contacted his friend Marvin, who had just been laid off by Fox in 1953, and asked if he would like to join Wed Enterprises. In 1953, Wed was located in an old temporary building on the studio lot and was referred to as the Zorro Building. Although stories are being developed for the television series, this was a bit of a red herring to prevent word leaking out as to what the people in this building were actually doing. The heavy darkwood furniture in the building would be used in the Hacienda of Don Diego de la Vega when the series was finally produced. In reality, this was where the designers of Disneyland worked to bring Walt's vision for his park to life. And this was also another one of these buildings that had no insulation, could not be air conditioned nor heated. (laughs) That sounds so pleasant. (laughs) I know. We talked about that last week when we talked about the model shop. Same, same kind of thing. Yeah. what What a tough time. At this point, the project wasn't called Disneyland. It was simply referred to as Walt's Park. Walt referred to it as a playground for young and old. Marvin recalled, I had four drafting tables. We had storyboards in there and little sketches of different scenes within the various rides. Walt was very interested in the overall plan of Disneyland, and two or three times he brought in a little scribble on a napkin or a piece of paper, and I finally said, Walt, if you're going to do this, take a roll of tracing paper with you. From then on, he'd draw out what he had in mind. Walt would take a look at what Marvin had drawn, sit on a stool next to him, then put a piece of tracing paper over it and say, Marvin, let's do it like this. Walt would then take him through four or five different versions of a concept on four or five different days. And and Marvin said sometimes they'd circle back to the original concept, but Walt Walt had to walk through every single concept to see what worked best. 
Yeah. I mean, that's, it, that's a fun trick too. When you're really passionate about like one concept and uh, people aren't seeing it, sometimes you also have to kind of fudge around with it, maybe show a couple ones that aren't up to snuff in that way too. And then it's like, well, let's circle back around to that first one. And all of a sudden it looks a lot more attractive. So, uh, it might've been, it might've been a good tactic from him. Might've just been how it all played out. But I, you know, I, I guess we'd have to ask him, but I have a feeling we won't be able to. <laughs> no, not in this lifetime anyway. <laughs> Walt worked on the concepts for the Jungle River Ride, as it was called at the time, and on Frontierland with harbors here and there and a bend in the river here to provide a view of the Indian village. Walt also drew ideas for the mine train and sketched out the plan for Rivers of America on a napkin. Walt also designed the general shape of Tom Sawyer's island. Marvin spent most of his time drafting plans, blueprints, and elevations for the park and of the individual attractions, with Walt keeping an eye on everything. Said Marvin, our building was right there just inside the main gate, and Walt would stop by as he came in from the parking lot on his way to the office. He'd stop in and take a look around and see every one of us. The back of my neck was red many times from him looking over my shoulder. He thought I was stubborn, but he was the most stubborn guy. Marvin had his ways of getting around Walt, which Walt knew. However, Marvin always deferred to Walt because his concepts were brilliant. In 1955, Marvin married Walt Disney's niece, Marjorie Sewell. Marvin recalled, at one point, I actually went up to his office and I said, Walt, I'm going to marry Margie. He just said, go ahead. When Walt heard that Margie was going to marry me, he said to her, you know, he's a very stubborn man, said Marvin. Maybe Walt liked that in me because he was a hell of a lot more stubborn than I am. Marvin said he worked up 133 different drawings and designs for the park because they had no idea where it was going to be. Once the location of the park was determined, it was Marvin's job to design the layout and organize all of Walt's ideas for his park into one site plan. Whilst reviewing one of the site plans on August 8, 1953, Walt picked up a number one carbon pencil and drew a triangle around the plot of land to indicate where he wanted his railroad to run. And they still have that in the archives, that sketch. Mm. Two concepts Walt wanted Marvin to incorporate into the site plan were a single park entrance to ensure guests had a good starting point for their visit. The other was to have all the theme lands of the park to be arranged like a wheel with a central hub. This would allow guests to naturally rotate through each land and reduce the amount of walking required by guests, especially grandparents, who could rest on a bench in the central hub whilst children explored the different spokes or lands in the park. Now, this was innovative at the time, but amusement park owners criticized this layout, especially the lack of multiple entrances. How do you feel about that? 
Like, I mean, obviously Disney has embraced it now in a way with like, you know, California Adventure. There's technically three different ways you can get mm-hmm. into that park from the two hotels and then, then the main entrance. And I mean, technically with Disneyland too, it only took a couple of years and then you could have an entrance via the, the monorail or the, the main entrance. Are, are you pro or, or con? Like, do you like the one entrance only? style or do you prefer the convenience of having multiple entrances i think for storytelling purposes i like the one entrance if the park is meant to be laid out to tell a story Mm -hmm. you know like epcot it doesn't bother me because i don't think that park necessarily is laid out to tell a story it's more about experiences so having the international gateway doesn't i don't think that I don't think that has an effect on this on this rhythm of that park. Yeah. And I think even then, for, it, it yeah. kind of does, like it, it actually does have a little storytelling in that way. When you come in from International Gateway, if you're only planning on staying in World Showcase, then it kind of does fit in that way. So I, that that's a little bit of a stretch, but I, I'd agree with you too. With a park like Epcot, it actually, especially how long that park is, mm-hmm. that it makes it very, very uh, useful and convenient for those hotel guests. Yeah, But like Animal Kingdom, I think that park does tell a story. Mm-hmm. The way that they, you know, you, they funnel you in and then you have the big exposition of the Tree of Life and then the different lands in that park. Uh, it sort of operates, tells a story. It's not like Disneyland's story, but it does tell a story as you experience it. And Disneyland was set up to tell a story. Walt saw everybody moving in a circular fashion in a particular way. Um, I don't think that ever really happened. But, you know, but so I think for the castle parks, the single entrance is important in a park like Animal Kingdom, where the, the Imagineers meant it to tell a story. But for the other parks, like, you know, California Adventure, I don't think it's, it's again it's more of an experience than a storytelling yeah and so. it's it, i i completely agree with that too and it does feel like it's a little bit more natural in those parks where you don't have the the hub and spoke concept because you i mean even technically animal kingdom does have that it takes mm-hmm. you know the the oasis area is kind of your main street usa in a way and the tree of life even though it's you know kind of off on its own and there is a little bit of water surrounding it that is arguably the the castle point and then you just circle around it to get to all the different ones so there's there's a lot of uh there's a lot of distinct uh a distinct similarities between Animal Kingdom and Magic Kingdom or Disneyland Park that that I feel like it works in those concepts. But yeah, with with something like Hollywood Studios, I mean, it's just a, it, yeah, you could argue that the area in front of Great Movie Ride, well, gosh, sorry, Runaway Railway is uh, is kind of your your hub in that area. But it's all just so disjointed that I don't think it matters where you go in and out of and. Uh, even even the concept of moving in that park in a cohesive way it just it doesn't exist because there's there's just so many random ways you could go but um i i like i prefer the intentions of the hub and spoke design and the singular entrance i think that that speaks more to my taste in theme parks but i'm i'm, I'm not i'm not upset with how how it changed and evolved but i i like the classic style the best for me yeah i agree with you yeah, and it helps ori- 
it helps to orient guests. Yeah. I think that whole hub and spoke. Yeah. Like I still to this day, I don't like getting on the monorail or getting on the monorail in downtown Disney and getting dropped off in Tomorrowland. I, I want to walk through those gates of Disneyland. That's, mm-hmm. that's the way I like getting in there. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm also stubborn. We'll add a third stubborn person <laughs> to this list. Yeah. I I'll ride the monorail like, you know, during the day as a, as you know, an experience, but I usually don't enter the Disneyland park that way. Yeah. Marvin also worked on designs for Main Street USA, the haunted house, which remember the original concept was for it to be on Main Street and the castle. Harper Goff worked on Adventureland designs. Sam McKinn worked on Frontierland designs. Bill Martin and Bruce Bushman were the principal designers of Fantasyland. This is a name I'm going to, I have no clue how to pronounce. Gabe Saj, do you want to give that a try, Craig? I think it's Gabe Skogman, Skognamillo, Skognamio. I'm not one of the Good. two of those. You're, you're better off than I am with that. Right. So apologies to his friends and family. And John Hench were the principal designers for Tomorrowland. Of Marvin Davis, John Hench said, Because Marvin had a rich background in live-action motion picture design, he had a strong sense of understanding of theater and how to give life and meaning to structures, which typically most formerly trained architects aren't interested in. He knew how to create architectural form that had a message for people. For instance, his structures on Main Street USA are irrepressible, optimistic. Of the park's site, plan. The theme lands were moved, renamed, and rethought repeatedly. Said Marvin, we knew we wanted the fantasy rides up at the end of Main Street once you go through the castle. Then the other lands just logically took their place. Tomorrowland was positioned as the final spoke on the left side of the hub, but it soon became apparent that this plan got in the way of Rivers of America. For efficiency's sake, Frontierland and Adventureland had to be adjacent, since they both contained enormous water elements, and Tomorrowland did not. So Tomorrowland was begun last, finished last, and had less to offer on opening day. That that was the most difficult because everything had to be created, while the other lands were the results of research. All of this was done even before the park location was known. After Buzz Price of the Stanford Research Center recommended the best site for Disneyland, the property was purchased. Marvin flew down to the property in his plane and took lots of photographs. We've told the story of how Herb Ryman created the beautiful rendering of Disneyland over a weekend with Walt's guidance, so Roy could present the concept to bankers and investors. Well, Herb Ryman's renderings were based on Marvin Davis's early layouts of the park. And according to Tom Morris, he did such a great job that we have basically stuck to this geometric formulas and distances ever since. So that sort of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, Craig, how so many of the parks have adapted this. Yeah, oh, no, it's it, it just works well, and hey, I always like it to us now. It feels also just like 
so straightforward with the choices that they made in terms of of where Adventureland, Frontierland, Tomorrowland, Fantasyland, where they were all going. Like it just I don't know if it's because it's just what we're used to now, but in my mind it was always like it always just played out because you want to start with Adventureland. Well, you start with Main Street because that's the grand entrance going to the castle. But Adventureland is not even really defined necessarily by a time. It could be long ago or or in the present, but it takes you into a different realm. Frontierland is so based in that that specific time in United States history that it could come next. Fantasyland, you're living in the present stories that Walt was telling, so that made sense. And then tomorrow beyond that, like it, it, in my mind it just always worked. But mm-hmm. and knowing that like they they had to think all this stuff up, it's it just always gives you an extra appreciation for uh, the the dedication that went into making a park where the, the thought was put in and, and a story was really being told. Yeah. And it, I, and I'm, when I hear how involved Walt was and, and, you know, I just keep going back to thinking he had such a simple upbringing and not a real formal education. And yet he intuitively, but, but he was self-educated. I mean, he read voraciously. He, mm-hmm. he loved meeting people, you know, in, the sciences and, and, and everything and talking to them and asking them questions. He was never afraid to ask questions. Um, so he was very self-taught, but that he just intuitively knew all of this and planned it just, I, I just, is so remarkable to me. Yeah. I mean, there are some people out there that their minds just work in a different way and they're not afraid to suggest they're not uh, they're not afraid to be creative to just really take chances and that it's a special type of person it's it's one thing to be the type of person who can go out and get it done but uh, a lot of times you know there's no place to go if you don't have that that idea person that inspiration and i mean we know it it was walt and that's why we have everything that we have now yeah yeah absolutely After the successful opening of the park, Marvin said, I think we were pleased with the overall park plan. The way the single entrance street worked in the hub, the general flow of traffic was what we expected, and it worked. People saw everything we wanted them to see. With Disneyland up and running, Marvin returned to the studio side and art direction for the next 10 years. The story of how he made this transition is one of being in the right place at the right time. Marvin recalled, I happened to be in the men's room in the animation building and Walt came in and went to the next urinal along the wall and said, Hey, Marv, I want you to take over Davy Crockett and his Zorro shows. So not not quite where you think you'll get your next job. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like that kind of business would be frowned upon today. (laughs) Marvin took over as the art director for the Davy Crockett at at the Alamo segment of the Disneyland television series. He was the art director for eight episodes of the Swamp Fox series for the Disneyland TV series before moving over to the Zorro television series. He designed the Diego de la Vega Hacienda scene, the Pueblo de Los Angeles village with the jail, church, and town square. Marvin also worked on several features for Walt Disney Productions, including 1956's Westward Ho! The Wagons, 
remember I loved that when it got re-released when I was mm-hmm. a boy. I loved the song. I don't know why. I had yeah. the record of it. Nope. Oh, great <laughs> album. Yeah. 1961's Babe in, Babes in Toyland, 1962's The Moon Pilot, also in that same year, Bon Voyage and Big Red. Um, 1963 Savage Sam, which was the sequel to Old Yeller. 1964's A Tiger Walks. And in 1966, Follow Me Boys. And in 1963, Marvin won an Emmy Award for Outstanding Achievement in Art Direction and Scenic Design for Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color television series. And I think he worked on something like 38 episodes of that wow. series. So, Not too shabby. Yeah. I mean, and it's just amazing how, how in those days they all just sort of moved between departments, yeah. you know, working I mean, on things. You have to wonder how much free time did they actually have? <laughs> I don't think they had a lot. <laughs> no, they were definitely uh, married to their careers as well yes. as, you know, maybe people at home too. <laughs> in 1965, Walt visited Marvin's office and said, Marv, you've got to quit this and go over to WED. I want you to work on Disney World just like you did on Disneyland. As the master planner of Disney World, Marvin was one of the few who really knew what was going on in Florida, how the property was being purchased, and what it looked like. He visited the Florida property several times with Walt. They walked around the property and flew over it several times. Of the property, Marvin said, actually on a scale of 10, that property was a one plus, maybe. It was just awful. It was a swamp. There was only one high spot in the whole thing. Bay Lake was all swamp too. It had these cypress trees that when they come down to the ground, they flare out. Then they have knees, which are the roots. They come up and turn around and go back down. Well, these things were all over that area because the water was knee deep. So in order to dig out Bay Lake, we had to bring in a huge dredger machines and scooper uppers. The roots would go down 30 feet and you had to get them out or they'd just keep growing. Every time I hear about what that land was like, it, it, it I'm just so impressed when I visit Walt Disney World with what yeah, they created. <laughs> I mean, I I know that there are many different environments out there that, you know, when you see like a, a town that was, you know, once thriving and then what happens when it's abandoned, uh, you, you see how nature takes back over. But I'm telling you, there's something else with Florida. It's like it, it does not take long too. I mean, I, I my back patio, I have to weed it like every single week, even if I use weed killer or whatever, because it just the plant life just wants to grow everywhere and envelop everything. And uh, Florida is just, it's a special place. It's, it's why I'm afraid to go to the Everglades. I'll go one day since it's a national park and I have to see them all, but I'm I, I, Florida freaks me out. It's, it's something else. <laughs> I've always wanted to go to the Everglades. So I just, I, I hate gators so much. I'm so afraid of them. I probably should be more afraid of the snakes that are there than the the alligators. But I'm that person that I it's I assume that if there's an alligator like 50 yards away from me, that it's going to come eat me. There was a TV show when I was a little boy that took place in the Everglades, and I just 
and I just became fascinated with it. And I think it was like a police show or something. I don't know. Or the person was a game warden or something. And it was all about how he went out. And I don't think it lasted long. Somebody out there probably knows the name of this show. And, and he would go around, you know, those big, boats they have with the big fan on the back yeah, and yep, it goes yep, yep. through the Everglades. I, as a little boy, I just wanted to ride one of those and I still do. And so I've always wanted to visit the Everglades ever since. Yeah. So that's I, I'll, I'll go one list. day. I'm, I can't <laughs> stay away from it forever. So yeah. it's like I said, it's a national park. I want to go to every single one of them at, before I uh, kick the bucket. So uh, I'll, I'll get there eventually. It's just not how, high on my list. How far are they from Orlando? Uh, so Everglades, I'm not sure where the park entrance would be, but uh, it takes about like three and a half hours to get to um, to get to like Fort Lauderdale or if you're going the other way to to Fort Myers and the Everglades basically sits in between both of those so i'm not again i'm not sure where the entrance is if it's closer down to like miami i would say like four four and a half hours Mm. but there's something more northern than maybe only like three hours so i just yeah i've I've never really looked into it when i come down there craig maybe we have to plan a day or something and you take off from work or we do it on a weekend and we just both go bring rory you protect me from gators that's all oh sure i'll I'll bring a I know, I'll bring a whip or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, watch Crocodile Dundee, get some inspiration, and uh, we'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. That would be fun. Anyway, well, in our early episodes of Connecting with Walt, we talk about how the property for the Florida project was selected and acquired, as well as how the property was developed. So if you have not heard those early episodes, you want to go back because it is amazing <laughs> So what they had to go through. Um, in the beginning, secrecy was most important, so people would not find out it was Walt Disney purchasing the land. Company representatives traveled to Florida using false identities, diversions, or claiming they were scouting locations for a film. For Walt, traveling to Florida was especially challenging because anyone with a television would recognize him. Since his luggage was monogrammed with W.E.D., he traveled under the name Walter E. Davis. So he took Marvin's last name. Marvin traveled with Walt on corporate visits to see the research and development labs at RCA, Xerox, and IBM. They got to see products and concepts that wouldn't be available to the public for five or ten years. Recalling these visits, Marvin said, When we first worked at Disneyland, I didn't think it would work. But by this time, I was a believer. I knew that if Disneyland could work, anything Walt did would work. I knew we'd have no problem in Florida. Marvin and Marjorie lived in Florida for six months in a cottage constructed for Disney employees on Bay Lake. They shared it with Don Tatum and his wife. There were five small double cottages. Roy and Edna Disney also lived in one. Corporations were eager to work with Walt because they knew what an association with Disney could do for them. Corporate relationships were equally important to Walt for his Florida project because he wasn't just thinking of a theme park. He was thinking of a whole new idea for urban planning and design. 
Walt had become concerned with the future and the world his grandchildren and future generations would live in. He viewed modern cities as badly planned, disorganized, dirty, and poorly serving its residents. Walt realized that much of the planning and technology it used for Disneyland could be applied on a larger scale for planning and constructing a whole city. Walt's idea for the experimental prototype community of tomorrow, or Epcot, would be a city designed to stimulate corporations to develop new ideas for better urban living. Now, Walt's passing left a hole that no one could fill. Of Walt, Marvin said, He was a wonderful guy to work for, but he got every ounce of energy and creativeness that you had in you. He would come in, and maybe the first scheme that you had, he would just completely tear apart, you know? It might have been something that you thought was pretty good, or you wouldn't have showed it to him. He could just deflate you right down to zero. Then after you recovered a little bit, you would start right back over. Eventually, you would come up with something better. You do this two, three, four times, or however many times it took, and it was entirely possible that you would come back to the original scheme, the first one that you showed him. But he wanted to see every idea that you could possibly have before he settled on something. After Walt's passing, the future of everything was in doubt the future plans of the studio, the Florida Project, and especially Epcot. Marvin remembered a meeting that determined the course of all of Walt's ideas and plans, saying he, meaning Walt, had freedom to do whatever he wanted, and it just about did me in when Walt's plans were changed so drastically when he died. When it happened, there was a big meeting that included Walt Disney Productions Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer Card Walker, de facto studio head Bill Anderson, and CEO Roy Disney. This meeting was in a big room, and to the best of my ability, I presented Walt's concepts for Epcot. I got through and sat down, and Roy turned around and looked at me and said, Marvin, Walt's gone. Marvin conceded that Epcot would not have worked as well without Walt's guidance. The company was focused on entertainment, and Walt's Epcot provided little entertainment value. Walt was not as concerned about the Magic Kingdom. His attitude was he had solved all the planning difficulties with Disneyland and basically told Marvin to do the same thing for the Magic Kingdom. Marvin designed the master plan for the Magic Kingdom and contributed to the design of the contemporary Polynesian and golf resorts. After creating over 130 versions of the master plan for Disneyland, he had to create only seven versions for Walt Disney World. You know what's so insane about this that I, I do agree in with everything with Walt passing away that Epcot probably should not have moved forward and couldn't move forward. But how many times in the story now have you told us that, you know, Marvin Davis, you know, obviously had to create different things, but Walt would go with the first one. I kind of have this inkling or suspicion that based on what Marvin Davis knew and how he worked, they could have come up with a very, a, a very like 
good plan for how to bring Epcot to life. They could have done it, whether or not anyone would have had the passion to keep it going and pulling those corporations and really continue its vibrancy in the future. That's a different subject, a debate that I think, yeah, without Walt, you're not going to get that. But could they have built it and got it off the ground i i kind of feel like they they would have been able to uh knowing knowing what i do now about marvin davis but i i mean ultimately it's we we can sit around and wonder what would have happened for years and years and years but i i feel like he kind of by the end of his time working with walt he had a good idea of of mm-hmm. you know how to how to make it stick how to make it work so who knows? In a, in a different reality, maybe they they went on with it and created it. <laughs> they but they could have. And Marvin also said, you know, it, that it was entirely possible that as time went on, Walt would have um, ended up envisioning Epcot to be a theme park because Walt no. changed his ideas so many times. So that so that came from that was coming from Marvin Davis. Who yeah. knew Walt that it was entirely possible Walt would have changed direction as time yeah, went yeah, on? Yeah, I mean, it's it seems like he was, uh, you know, smarter smarter than the average person. Really, really perceptive. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and and Marvin also served as the liaison between the resort hotels I mentioned, the Contemporary Polynesian and Golf Resorts that were being designed at the time by Welton Beckett and Associates and um, Wed Enterprises. And the company gave no more thought to Walt Zipcott. So Marvin retired in 1975 and after a brief illness, passed away in Santa Monica, California on March 8th, 1998. He was named a Disney legend in 1994. In 1998, several Imagineers shared their memories of Marvin Davis for um, WDI, EYE Magazine. And this is, and these are all courtesy of our uh, dear late friend Jim Corcus. I think he shared these on a Mouse Planet um, website. Um, so, it, so it's nice that these are saved because I don't know how many people have kept this magazine over the years. Um, anyway, so what Marty Scalar wrote was um, Marvin was a bulldog. He pushed things and kept pushing them until everyone, especially him, was completely satisfied with them. He was just extremely thorough and professional. Determined was the right word for Marvin. It took him 69 versions of the Disneyland Master Plan before Walt said, okay. It was a difficult situation. No one had ever done anything like Disneyland before, but he just kept pushing. A source of great pride for him, though, was that when he came back to Imagineering to do Walt Disney World, it took him only seven versions. That's remarkable, considering that Walt Disney World was 27,000 acres, a big puzzle that he had to sort out and make understandable for guests. A lot of people worked on that plan, but it was Marvin who brought it all together. Sam McKinn wrote, Marvin hired me. I was working at 20th Century Fox, though I didn't know him when he was there, and he was one of two people who looked at my portfolio. He must have liked what he saw because I was asked to come the next Monday after the interview. It was only supposed to be a temporary job, but it turned out to be for 32 years. We developed a good friendship. 
Marvin wasn't overbearing, but he knew what he wanted and he gave you the room to do it. I feel lucky to have worked with someone like him. Bill Martin said, Marvin and I actually go way back to 1940. We met at 20th Century Fox and he was the first to go to Disney. In 1953, there were only about a half dozen of us at the time. It was a real small group, and Walt would stop by every day to see how we were doing. None of us thought the park was going to happen, because no one had any idea what a theme park was. Everybody was used to these amusement parks with iron rides, so I went back to Fox to finish a picture. But Marvin kept at it, and by the time I was done with the picture, Disneyland was given the go-ahead. That's the thing about Marvin. He had this stick-to-itiveness. He was very quiet, very unassuming, but he kept at whatever he was doing. And said Bill Evans, The remarkable thing about Marvin was his attitude. He could have been angry about his ailment. Uh, Marvin um, had suffered from the effects of polio. But he was always up, always positive, always in good spirits. He never let it affect him. He was cheerful creative, and an inspiration to everyone who knew him. One time in the summer of 1967, we were trying to get a better look at the site in Florida. It was hotter than Hades that day, 100 degrees Fahrenheit and humidity in the 90s. We crammed into Land Rovers and ours got really stuck in the mud. There was no one around the 28,000 acres at the time, except for an occasional hunter chasing a deer. So I had to leave Marvin behind while I slogged through the mud looking for others. When we finally got back to him, he wasn't as cheerful as usual, but I guess you wouldn't be either if you had to sit in that heat and humidity for several hours. And wrote John Hench, the one thing you always noticed about Marvin was how determined he was to bring closure to everything. Some thought it was stubbornness. He just wanted to take a job to the bitter end. You couldn't stop him. He would push on to the end no matter what. I remember he was trying to build a recreation room on the back of his house, and he had to shave off part of a hill to do it. He went at it for two years until he finally got the okay from the county. All of us would have given up, but he didn't. He was like that at work, too. But the one thing I admire is that he never lost his temper, especially for being such an impatient guy. I always like to hear what people say about a person because they always talk about the qualities that make them successful. You yeah. know, the stick to you know, seeing a project through, you know, things like that. And that he was unassuming that... Yeah. He was mild-mannered, even though he was impatient and stubborn. Yeah, you know, things like that. There's a lot of respect in there, but at the same time, there's there's an honesty with it, too. <laughs> there, I, 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 Maybe that's just a quality, too, about everyone that worked with Disney, that they were, they were so candid about each other. But it presents a realistic view of these people that, that created and shaped this entertainment that we love. So I actually, I, I prefer that like when you, you read these quotes and, and hear them that it, it does feel like, okay, this is genuine. It's not like mm-hmm. let's, he's gone. So let's just give the best qualities. It's it, they clearly, they clearly had a lot of respect for each other. And that's, yes. that's so, so awesome. That is, that is, there was such a camaraderie 
at the studio in the early days. I think that's why I, I love reading about the early days of, of the Walt Disney studio, Walt Disney productions because of the camaraderie and they, 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 they were pioneers. They never, they, no one had done any of this before. So they didn't know they couldn't do it. So they did it. Yeah. So it's, so all these stories are just so fascinating. That's sort of what's fun of doing this show is, you know, digging up all these stories. Yeah. And, and never knowing. Them. Yeah. Never knowing when, you know, you find out something about someone that you never really knew a lot about them before. Like mm-hmm. I, I admitted to you before this, I was not very familiar with Marvin Davis besides uh, just kind of reading over your outline of him. And I'm walking away from it saying like, why, why do more people not talk about Marvin mm-hmm. Davis and his impact that he had on the company? Yeah. And what intrigued me, because first of all, people get him confused with Mark Davis. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk about (laughs) him. There was also another Marvin Davis at 20th Century Fox. He was an oil man, the oil wildcat, as he's been called. And he bought 20th Century Fox. So it's interesting. There were two Marvin Davises at 20th Century Fox, who, of course, now is part of Disney. And then... um, so that's the other thing is I want to make sure he gets his due. His window, I think he needs a better window at Disneyland because <laughs> yeah. there's nothing to describe him. He just shares it with Richard Irvine, who yeah. Richard Irvine deserves a better window as well. But yeah, those are the early sure. years, early years at Disneyland when he got that window. Yeah, so. we'll appreciate it for now because uh, eventually I'm sure Oil Tycoon Fox Studios, Marvin oh, Davis gosh. will also become a Disney legend. Oh, uh, yes. Not none of the next ceremony a couple of years from now. Oh, so. that never occurred to me. But right <laughs> when they're really scraping the bottom of the barrel. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's, it's someone you didn't hear of, but you don't know how much of an impact he had at Fox. Marvin yeah. Davis, not to be confused with our Marvin Davis. Yes. Go. Oh, gosh. And how did Marvin Davis remember Walt Disney? He said, that's easy. I would describe him as a fantastic executive and creator and an entrepreneur and a developer. He got the utmost out of everybody that worked for him. There wasn't one piece of ingenuity that he couldn't, he wouldn't get out of you. He was a wonderful boss. And when you did something right, you felt like you were on cloud 22. Now Disneyland is a huge success and it's laid out just the way we planned it. So. So Marvin Davis may be forgotten by the new generations of Imagineers, but his innovations and ability to work closely with Walt Disney and conceptualizing every aspect of Disneyland pioneered the study of theme park design. And he should be appreciated whenever we visit a Disney park. So, so hopefully, you know, you'll take the time to, to search for his windows whenever you visit Disneyland and um, the Magic Kingdom. Yeah. I mean, literally, when you're walking through the park, realize that uh, he had such a huge impact on how you walk through Disneyland and Walt Disney World. Without him, who who knows? Who knows if it would have all come together? So something we can truly, truly be thankful for. Yeah. I mean, who knows? You, who, you know, who could have translated Walt's ideas into the physical park parks we have today 
I I think about that all the time with like Disneyland and and Walt Disney World too, but like with Disneyland specifically when when you think back and see like the photos of Walt just walking on land and you know their footstep tracing stuff out and it's like it all came together well from this ragtag group of people that really did have no business creating this stuff from the ground up, but yet it all, it all worked. And, you know, they're just as we've talked about and said already before in this episode and, and we'll reiterate it just, he found Walt found a way to put the right people in the right place at the right time and bring that talent together. And that's why we have what we have. But it really, if you think about it in a, in a greater sense, there's no reason why it should have all came together as well as it did. But we are, we are so lucky that it did. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, and now it's time for this week in Disney history. Right, Craig, is it your turn to start this week? Honestly, I don't even remember, but I am more than happy to start. All right. Sounds good. Okay. Mine is going back to the ripe year of 1996. Uh, I... Uh, best part about mine is I know I already have one for next week that I can share too, but uh, a very important event happened on February 20th of 1996. And that was the debut of part one of Roseanne going to Walt Disney world. And I'm sure I've mentioned this before and I will mention it every single year because there is nothing quite like watching these, uh, the ABC sitcoms, of everyone going to Walt Disney World. They are just absolutely great uh, snapshots of time with with Walt Disney World in general and how they were trying to market them to to a new audience now that Disney owned ABC and each one uh, each 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 TV show that went to Walt Disney World just did it from a complete different perspective. And like the part one of Roseanne, it's not even them at Walt Disney World. It's them announcing they're going. And then the struggle of such a large, uh, I'll say it, obnoxious family uh, <laughs> having to travel there and the misadventures on the plane with it, too. So it's not even a fair one, but it's it's the start of it. And uh, I love I love how they handled theirs. Uh, you know, Full House is another classic one. They're, they're all modern so family they, is my favorite one. I when do they love Modern Family. So, oh, when, when, uh, when Gloria loses her shoes and then she gets the big the duck, Donald Duck slippers or something. Yeah. And it's like walking on clouds and it completely changes her personality. And you realize yeah. the reason she has a sharp edge to her is because she wears uncomfortable shoes. Oh, yep. I just, I couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's perfect. It is so, so funny. I, I do love that one of the, some of the sitcoms that went in the, you know, the next era of them trying to do theme park tie in episodes. That, that one's my favorite. I, I think though that the, the second Roseanne episode is, mm-hmm. is always going to be my favorite. The, the one where they're actually in Walt Disney World. I mean, they break every bit of reality with it you know the way that they seemingly bounce between epcot and magic kingdom with, with no issues at all and uh you know just having uh throwing popcorn on the ground and there's always a custodial cast member right there to sweep <laughs> it up which you know people wish we'd have that 
in this day and age. But I, I feel like that to me is is it just it nails every little bit of Walt Disney World in the nineties and in a humor in a humorous way. And then of course I always have to mention too with it. It's so brilliant that then the very next week after they did the first part, the second part, and then the very next week after those episodes, they had to counter everything that they did with the Disney corporate machine. And they had uh, an episode about Edelweiss Gardens where uh, David, the Johnny Galecki character, goes and works there. And it's all about how uh, Hans the Hare, how they brainwash you. Uh, if you go to work at the theme park and and turn into a different person and place and like it's just you know I I, I love Disney obviously we're we're here to talk about it and praise it but I I like that they still had to be a little bit brutal with it and and make that that little joke about Disney and their cast members in the parks right after so uh, that's it, those those three episodes right in a row are about the best uh, the best Disney episodes that you can get right there and and, and when the Simpsons visit. Walt Disney World. Those are always I, good episodes too. <laughs> they are. They absolutely are. Every every time you see Disney pop up in it, it's I I always get a kick out of it too. Yeah. Oh, just we need more of that. I agree. I agree with you. So now mine takes place not terribly far from where I live. This is February eighteenth, nineteen sixty. Under t- there was terrible weather. This is now the. The Winter Olympics is the uh, eighth Winter Olympic Games. And I did a whole episode on this where uh, Walt Disney was um, responsible for the opening and closing ceremonies. He was the head of pageantry for the games. And actually, Disney sort of did everything. They were responsible for the design of a lot of the games. Um, Also for Olympic Village, they were responsible for the activities for the different athletes, something that had never been done before, where they did entertainment for the athletes. Walt flew in all his Hollywood friends, and they did shows and things for them. Um, but anyway, this is now time for the opening ceremonies. This There were 5,000 participants, 1,285 instruments, 2,645 voices from 52 California and Nevada high schools. The, there was heavy, heavy snow that day. The games are delayed an hour. Vice President um, Richard Nixon is having a very difficult time getting to the games um, to be part of the opening ceremony. Uh, the, uh, and um, they, they were, they were going to say they were going to cancel these poor high school bands and all that because their lips were freezing to the instruments. And Walt said, absolutely not. They've come all this way. We are not going to, you know, take this opportunity away from them and all of that. So it's finally, they've been delayed an hour. Everything is, it's, it's now do or die. And they call this, this, this is where the Disney weather um, sort of concept came into being where whenever something's about to happen, if it's bad weather, the weather's going to clear up if it's a Disney event, because the clouds parted, the sun came down, and suddenly the the opening ceremonies now could commence, and they commenced without a hitch. This was also the first time the opening ceremony was televised. 
And a lot of what Walt Disney and his team did at the Olympics are now Olympic traditions. They're always done for every Olympic Games. And Disney artist John Hench designed the massive Tower of Nations that's located at the entrance of the valley. It's not called Squaw Valley anymore. They renamed it. We all call it Squaw Valley still. And he designed the Olympic torch that now is the basic design for all modern Olympic torches. And you can see it at the uh, Walt Disney Family Museum. They do have one of the, the, the torch he designed is there on display. And the um, this Tower of Nations is 79 feet high and 20 feet um, tall. Um, the valley also has 30 flagpoles for the flags of every participating nation. Each one is has a plaque signed by Walt Disney. After the games, the flagpoles go are go to different homes. Some go to uh, some of the corporate sponsors. It goes to it goes to their headquarters. But there are places you can go to to see one of these. Like if you go on a backstage magic tour or a D23 tour of the Walt Disney Studio, one of those flagpoles is in front of the Disney Studio Commissary in Burbank, California. So, and of course, you can sign up for backstage magic adventures by Disney tour through um, adventure through Dreams Unlimited Travel. And also, if you go to Marceline, Missouri, one of those flagpoles is at the Walt Disney Elementary School. So anyway, so these Olympics are the most elaborately ever staged, and they set the new standard for future games. And again, a lot of what Walt and his team planned, we still enjoy today. Every time we watch the Olympics, they became traditions. So very impressive. And you can still see there's still remnants of the Olympics are still there when you go to Squaw Valley or whatever it's named. I, I really yeah. don't recall what its name is. I probably should have taken three seconds to look it up before um, <laughs> <laughs> we got there. But I mean, like I said, nobody calls it yeah. except the news people. Nobody call everybody calls it Squaw Valley. <laughs> See, you're you're doing it a, a good service then. So when people do uh, come from out of town and they're they're asking the locals about it, and then you know they're not going to confuse anyone. So I, I applaud you, Michael. I, oh, I'm, thank you. I'm super excited to hear another reason why one day Richard Nixon will become a Disney legend too. So <laughs> I, I think we're close. What? Because he was at the opening of uh, Disneyland '59 with the monorail, right? And mm-hmm. he was then with the Olympic connection now too. Uh-huh. To, I think start prepping that episode. Wait, I'm didn't interested he to hear give what happened one of his famous speeches from a hotel? Oh yeah, a contemporary too. Contemporary the, hotel, I'm, I'm not a crook. Yeah, uh-huh. so yeah, the three, checkers three speech. Right yeah, yeah, <laughs> the famous get checkers that script speech. ready. Yeah, yeah. We, oh, uh, Him and Marvis Davis, the owner, Marvin Davis, the owner of, <laughs> of the 20th Century Fox. The I, Texas I you, oil men. I know nothing about Richard Nixon, so I'm excited to see where this story goes. <laughs> you know nothing about him. I can fill nothing you in. <laughs> <laughs> I lived through a lot of his career towards the end there. I look forward to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In my uh, civics classes in high school, we watched the Watergate trial. Yeah. Oh, fun. <laughs> it was boring. <laughs> anyway, we did not watch the more interesting parts. 
So we gotcha. watched the, op- yeah. the opening parts, which is a lot of exposition. The opening ceremony inspired <laughs> by Walt. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. So, all righty. Well, that was it. Two good, two good items for, uh, yeah. for this week in Disney history. So looking forward to the next Olympics. I saw how they're, they're really for the, um, Olympics next year in France. It looks like they, they are going to be finished with Notre Dame Cathedral. I, so I think that's the scaffolding great, so. starting to come down and uh, I, I'm very excited. I, the whole reason for me to want to go back to France is to see that cathedral since yeah, it had I've, just burned when we went on our adventures by Disney, uh, the dreams unlimited travel, um, specially designed one adventures yeah. by Disney tour. No, it's, I mean, yeah. we literally, we would not be in this place without, how far technology has come uh the fact that they just have been able to to work so quickly at, at bringing it back to life i mean i yeah. i'm so happy it's because we live in a time where in a not uh so distant past from now they they could have just decided let's just bulldoze it start over in this area so that, that well that it wasn't lucky. that that it couldn't be saved yeah, you know, yeah, I mean, exactly. if this had happened, maybe like in the 1950s or something, we may not have been able to save it. Yeah, so. I mean, I don't think they would have been able to save it during the fire, and then they probably would have said, "Okay, well, let's just get rid of it completely and do something new in this land." So, yeah. uh, very, very fortunate. I, I, I think it's cool. It's it, we were excited here in Orlando because they held uh, marathon trials. Uh, in downtown Orlando, a couple weeks back. So, yeah, I'm I'm ready for Olympics. I love it, the it Olympics. Feels like it's been too long. I'm not into sports, although I did watch the Super Bowl because the Niners were in it. But um, but uh, I love the Olympics, so I watch it's, as much of it as I can. I it's one of those. It's just one of those events where most of those athletes, you know, they're they're not making money from what they're doing if you're a michael phelps getting endorsement deals and and in that level that's that's one thing but uh in you know like hockey players basketball players like every now and then you can get those breakouts but for the most part it's it's athletes that are put on a stage to to show off for their countries in the world in in those small little moments and it's just like even when it's not your country that wins you just you see the joy on their faces it's so infectious even Mm -hmm. even the sports that i don't care about you know i don't i don't care in the winter olympics when there's people who are cross-country skiing and then shooting a target that means nothing to me but seeing their seeing the joy when they win that gold medal is just, mm-hmm. it's Absolutely. one of the, that's why I keep watching it every single year with stuff I don't care about. It's, uh, uh, it's just something special. It's that shared human experience. Yeah. I get caught up in the whole, it, 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 whatever the event is, I just get caught up in it and the excitement of it and the physicality of it thinking, Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. The, uh, how they push their bodies beyond the limits and everything, so you just can't help but root for all of them, no matter exactly. what country they're from. I mean, yep. you know, as long as they're not uh, doping. <laughs> yeah, Did you hear our poor, <laughs> our poor figure skater? Oh, I know we're way off on a tangent here. We'll get back to Disney. <laughs> Are we? Um, the, our poor figure skaters from the last Olympics, like two or three weeks ago, they were awarded gold because it turned out the 
gold medal winners were cheating. So they had their medal removed. And now our poor, the Americans were, they had won silver. So now they got gold, but they, it, it was just a news item. I don't know if they got, it was FedEx to them, the medals. I thought those poor people, they don't get any endorsements. Now they're not getting any recognition. They didn't get to stand on the podium and hear the national anthem and see that flag go up. And I just thought, so it, that, that kind of thing ticks me off. So when there's, I, mean, I don't know what the cheating was. It was a, country that it wouldn't surprise you which one it is but um but they're well known in figure skating but uh, i just felt i felt so sad I'm, I'm happy that our athletes got gold but i'm sad with the way they got it you know huh. so yeah i completely i completely miss that uh well i mean i hope they get to keep both medals <laughs> yeah I, I just assume everybody moves up so the people that missed it by one now they get bronze, I guess. Yeah. So yeah. good for them, but yeah. they didn't even get they didn't even get their names mentioned. But anyway, oh well. Interesting. So let's let's hope all that gets cleaned up for the next go yeah. round. So. Exactly. Anyway, speaking of the next go round, we're going to have it has been I think it's been over a year since we had Q and A shows. Hasn't it? At least, at least yeah. over a year. I think it was right around April, maybe last year, but it, it could have been earlier than that. And I mean, yeah, those I questions know. were from a long time before that, before, you know, life started getting in the way, too. So excited to to start it back up, get those questions in. Yeah. So do you want to talk a little about the criteria for the Q&A? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I, I mean, I hope we still have a bunch of people listening from uh, back <laughs> in the day when we we used to do our Q and A episodes uh, really regularly. And if you're new, thank you for joining us. We're happy to have you here. Uh, it's your chance to be part of the show and uh, ask ask Michael and I questions. And uh, basically, we will take questions about Walt Disney, uh, the theme parks, movies, music, TV, uh, just any uh, anything in general Disney related uh, that goes into the mausoleneous category. And uh, yeah, we we take all those questions and we go through the entire list and we try to pick out as many as we can to answer. And where do you leave those questions? Well, over at facebook.com slash Diz Unlimited, uh, you're going to see a post that we put out that will be pinned to that uh, that Facebook page. And it's uh, it'll have connecting with Walt on there. And it's going to say, drop your questions in the comments. And so that's where you're going to go ahead and put all of those questions. And if you don't, if you're not on Facebook, you know, find a friend who's on Facebook and have them <laughs> ask a question. Uh, but that's where you're going to leave them, and we'll we'll go through them, and hopefully we'll answer your question on the show. Uh, we just hope that you uh, follow a couple guidelines, simple and easy. Number one, uh, we we like complex questions, you know, ones that aren't just answered with a simple yes or no question uh, or yes or no answer, you know, something that we can have a little discussion, provide a little more insight on, not just answer. Yes. Yes, that's it. Uh, and then, of course, too, uh, our <laughs> biggest guideline, one that we we have to keep in mind always, uh, 
please do not ask us what Walt Disney would think about this or that. Don't ask us what Walt Disney would think about the Mandalorian movie or what he would think about Moana 2 uh, or the act. The, getting the acquisition stake in Epic Games, we don't know what he would he, think about any of that. He has not shared stuff. that with us. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he has not shared it with us. Uh, even the people who were closest to Walt uh, have said over and over again that you know there's there was just ultimately no predicting what Walt would have wanted and what direction he would have went in. Just good guesses and uh we we're not going to give those answers so try to stay away from those try to stay away from yes or no's and uh yeah just you know there is no such thing as a bad question so just ask away and we hope we get to answer yours great thank you so we'll look forward to to those and then as we get them we'll as time goes on we'll announce the cutoff for those the cutoff mm-hmm. date exactly. so you can get those in because then I'll grab all of those questions. Then we'll start researching them, you know, and organizing them, researching them. That takes some time. And then we'll announce the, when we're going to start answering those questions. It'll probably be in April, probably yeah. be April shows that we'll start and we'll start those shows up. And it usually takes a couple of episodes. So to yeah, take usually two. Yeah. At least. So we look forward to it. It's been a long time. I know some of you have been hanging on the questions and some of you, you know, we usually don't get to all of them. So if, if you have a question that maybe you submitted way back when, and we just didn't get to it, go ahead and submit it again. And we might, you know, we might, um, you know, we might, might be able to answer it this time around. Exactly. So, Cause we just sort of run out of time after a while. So, Okay. Oh, you know, Craig, I'm, um, we've talked about Dreams Unlimited Travel. I'm going on a Dreams Unlimited Travel group um, cruise in, uh, in May and sort of my retirement sort of celebration. You know, celebration. And uh, it's on Norwegian fjords. And um, my travel agent is, is, um, is Tracy. So, you know, you can contact her. So anyway, but Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, we were actually, uh, before you and I started recording today, we were just recording uh, Dreams Unlimited Travel Show episodes with Tracy, and uh, she gave a big old plug for, for that cruise and some of the oh, other good. upcoming ones, too. So uh, I don't know when that episode will release, but uh, yeah, if you you want to join the group and, and be on a cruise with Michael and other, uh, other Diz people, uh, not necessarily disemployees but uh you know we we there's a giant group that just always seems to travel with dreams and mm-hmm. uh all you know all passionate disney fans all love the diz and the different shows that we put out there really really good groups so uh look look for those episodes in in the yeah. future and you'll get more information on yeah. them so craig how should they contact tracy if they're interested in this Ooh, cruise? Uh, Tracy spelled T R A C E Y H at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Yes, yeah. yeah, Tracy Heinrichs is her name. But this is going to be a terrific cruise. Yeah, and, and I'll be there. And so we'll, uh, yeah, a lot of people that you probably know from the boards or other Diz cruises, Diz events, stuff like that. So it's a, it's mm-hmm. a really exactly. nice group, a really nice group of people. I'm, I feel very blessed i know carol and i felt very blessed that all these people became our friends through the diz that's the neat Uh thing about going on these trips 
with with dreams limited travel is you meet lifelong friends on there yeah, but and uh <laughs> that will force us into our our little may hiatus that we'll be on too. that's right that's right our may hi we usually take it in april we're taking it in may this time yeah but one of the things this but i'm also you know it, it leaves out of southampton so week before week after i'm doing a lot of traveling through england meeting up with remember our friend our former imagineer david younger i'm um yeah. i'm meeting i'm visiting with him and his family for a couple of days he's now married with two little boys and all that so i'm i'm traveling up to see him taking a 3 hour train ride which i'm very excited about doing but mm. i want to see the english countryside that's my big thing going to the coswalds and going through kent afterwards but i was reading the itinerary for what i'm doing after the cruise with with the tour i'm on and you know the television show the, it, it was a series on on this on television show the scarecrow of romney marsh yeah, yeah of course yeah and yeah. it's on the disney treasures too i have mm-hmm. that um mm-hmm. i'm I'm going to be going on a train ride. And one of the things it says and see the, the landscapes of Rodney Marsh. So I'm actually going to go there. Isn't oh, that exciting? Go that, through that's it. That's wild. I, yeah. Here I was getting ready to set up the, the joke, like make sure you get on the right train that you don't go through a wall and end up on nine and three quarters and end up at Hogwarts. But uh, I know. You know, that's like an even better Disney connection involved there. <laughs> I know, I know. That's exciting. So uh, I am going to go to uh, Highclere Castle to see. Uh, I have to want to see where Downton Abbey was filmed. I think that'll yeah, be well, fun. But yeah. but I know we have listeners in England. So you know, maybe um, maybe after the cruise, I'm going to be in London for a couple of days. You know, maybe we can you know meet up somewhere at a pub or something. I don't know. So. Let me know. Because people have always reached out to me saying, if you're in England, let me know. Well, I, I don't remember who reached <laughs> out to me. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway. And now's maybe the time. We could, you will or, be there. Or maybe we could have tea, tea at Fortnum and Mason's or something like that. That would be mm-hmm. wonderful. So, yeah. Now, Craig, you and I have talked about – we've been talking about Tiana's Bayou Adventure. And I, I'm – I don't know. I'm I'm – cautiously optimistic this is one of my favorite films princess and the frog she's my favorite modern princess okay i saw and sharita i don't remember her last name but you know i've met her i've talked about carter carter thank you and and i i'm very impressed with her i think she's terrific and the most one of the most positive people i've ever met so she introduced the tiana audio animatronic figure and its movements look wonderful. And I know you saw that because the Diz posted it. That's where I saw it. Um, but I looked at the figure, and my first thought was, that doesn't look like Tiana. See, I see it, but that's also because Tiana is transforming for this attraction. Um, well, she's put on weight. Her, I mean, <laughs> well, it's not her, it's not her classic look. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, with the different hairstyle, I think that all plays into it. And then the fact, too, that, you know, it's it's moving on a boat where you have to keep in, in mind, like, it's the proportions and sizes are going to be different because of how your eyes are, are moving past it. So I... Uh, 
I mean, just my personal opinion. I think I think it looks great. I'm I am so happy as I think the rest of the world is that they did not try to stick with the the terrible face projection technology. I agree with, with you. And I think the it's, movements of the figure are wonderful. And, oh, and yeah. And I, I mean, I just hope it's a thing that they can maintain these movements. Uh it's it feels like it's been a long time since we've had a good fresh animatronic like this in Walt Disney World uh you know it's so so many of the animatronics in like Rise of the Resistance were uh were just reused ones i mean Hondo Naka in Smuggler's Run i feel like that's an example but you know it's even then there's plenty of times i've been in that attraction and seen the curtains up around him because mm-hmm. he's not working well so i i hope that it's not going to be an issue with with this attraction but i mean the fact that we're getting so many characters uh actual you know, human characters in a tra- in uh, animatronic form as part of this attraction uh, there's a lot to be excited about with it yeah i agree i just think her face doesn't look like Tiana, the shape of the face, things like that. I don't know. There's a rumor on the interwebs that they use the same facial structure as for Belle in, um, in, in the Beauty and the Beast attraction in Tokyo. I don't know. I haven't seen them side by side. But uh, anyway, but I don't know. I, so I was a little disappointed with the facial look. And I, otherwise... See- I, I just chalk it up to it's not it's not like this is the it's not like this is the movie it's a it's a three it, it's a real life three D representation of these characters and you know it's also not it's a whatever a year or so after the movie it's a different character she's happy she's celebrating <laughs> I'm like I, I, I chalk it up to letter change it doesn't need to be a stagnant cartoon where everyone looks the same the Simpsons look the same year after year. Now, maybe she's eating better now that she has a restaurant. So she's put on a little weight in her face. Maybe that's that it. Is, she's got the she's got that Naveen happiness with her. You know, everyone gains that little weight when they're they're in a good, happy relationship. You know, let themselves I, go a little. We all do it. <laughs> that's very true. So anyway, anyway, so I'm still I'm still optimistic. I'm still looking forward to this attraction. So hope it's, now, I, it's lively. On, um, I think it was on Twitter. Uh, it's a, a someone who maybe he was a former Imagineer, just works from the side, who was singing the praises of everything. Like, I mean, he might be contracting now and not actually an Imagineer, but was singing the praises for the scope and and everything they were doing inside the attraction. Oh, good, and good. that got me very excited. I'll try to find it and, and send it to you so you can see. But it was a, it was a very interesting read and. I yeah I'm I'm very hyped up for this attraction. I cannot wait. I'm sorry, sorry you have to wait over on your coast for a little while yeah. longer, but you can always come out here. Yeah, and I'm excited to see what else they're going to do in your frontier land to sort of um tie that section together, you know, yeah, to make it more of a New Orleans theme. So I'm looking forward to that. 
Yeah, I, th- I think we will. That will be one of the many things covered at D23 Expo. I don't think maybe we'll get it before then. You know, it's, if it's one of those things now that Tiana's is opening up sooner and we don't know how long it'll take for Country Bear Jamboree to, to reopen. If if those both open up in summertime, then they might have to announce something sooner than that. So, yeah, I'm yeah. I'm ready for it. Mm hmm. Yep, so am I. Looking forward to it. Well, I used several resources for this episode, including um, a book, Walt Disney's Imagineering Legends and the Genesis of Disney Theme Parks by Jeff Curdy, and E-Ticket Magazine number 28, Disneyland the First 12 Months. Some websites and articles I looked at include D23.com's article on Marvin Davis, Marvin Davis, uh, an article on waltzfolly.com, um, Marvin Davis's entry on the Disney Wiki. Um, Marvin Davis, his IMBD entry in there. Uh, v- on Variety.com, uh, Marvin Davis's obituary. And then a tribute to Imagineer Marvin Davis by Wade, Wade Sampson for Mouse Planet. Wade Sampson is actually Jim Corcus. That was his pen name at the time. Uh, late Jim Corcus. Mm-hmm. I miss I miss him and his books. So, yeah. uh, um, Jim's Attic, Imagineer Marvin Davis, Master Planner of Walt Disney World by Jim Corcus for AllEars.net. Disney Legends, Marvin Davis for the Disney Nerds podcast. Ma- and um, the, his Marvin Aubrey Davis, his little entry on Emmys.com. And the men who dreamed up Disneyland for inventing Disneyland. And Craig will include links to these resources in our episode description. So, um, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? As always, you can find me on all the different Diz Unlimited podcast shows we do. Uh, you can find me at uh, at my email address, Craig at DisneyInfo.com. And you can find me on social media, uh, all the big ones, at Teleclaster. What about you, Michael? You can send me messages at michaelbowling at disneyinfo.com. On Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, michaelbowling-connectingwithwalt. Instagram, michaelbowlingthediz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at connectingwalt. If you'd like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our episode description. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.